You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Hey there, welcome into another episode of the Bible Nerd Podcast. Hope you guys are doing very, very well today. Continuing on in our series in the book Faith, Form, and Time by Dr. Kurt Wise. And in this week's episode, we're going to talk about the, uh, or at least some of the biological expectations of creation theory. Uh, in many ways, this is where the rubber meets the road. Um, so much of creationism and the whole debate in science versus the Bible comes down to issues of biology. Now, it did originally start that way, okay? Um, geology is actually where the, uh, the real debate began, and of course, that's still a very big part of it. But today, biology with evolution theory uh, versus some of the things that we talk about in creation, like baromenology, you know, these are big hot-button issues for us today that we need to uh, deal with and come to an understanding of. Now, this is taken from page 119, and actually it's through, uh, it goes probably five, six, seven pages um, on from there, maybe even a little more than that. But starting at page 119 is where we are. So if you are in the book, Faith, Form, and Time, uh, then I would definitely encourage you to head there, check it out. And, uh, and that's where we're going to be drawing this particular information from. Now, if you remember, um, one of the things that we, we, we haven't talked about it actually that much on this podcast. We talked about it a little bit, um, but Dr. Wise does make a, a big deal out of it in the beginning of the book, is that creation uh, was created in some sense with maturity. Okay, now this is an um, argument that in the past was used a lot, but not really defined very uh, carefully or explained very well and led to uh, some issues, okay? And for, you know, one um, example of this is the starlight issue, right? So creationists have a um, challenge potentially to, to deal with, which is that distant starlight seems to take millions of years to um, get to the earth. And so if we are seeing light now, does that mean we're looking at a past history uh, that didn't actually exist, right? Are we looking, are we looking at stars that are millions of years old, but they're not really millions of years old, right? And that's a controversy that creationists have to deal with. One way that creationists have looked at this in the past is by appealing to um, the, uh, the maturity of the, of, of, of the creation. In other words, a literally creating the stars with a false history. And for good reason, I think most creationists now reject that way of looking at things. And uh, while I think that's the right path to take, um, there is a resurgence uh, in thought of of what one what one guy called uh, mature creation apologetics. Um, he's a scientist, um, Ken Colson, I think is his name, Ken Colson, and uh, he's got a YouTube channel and uh, written written a book and um, does some some really good work. And he talks about this idea of mature creation apologetics, and I really like the way that that he uh, lays it out. Um, Regardless, again, of, of all your thoughts on this or how much history you know about how creationists have used the concept of maturity in the past, one thing is undeniable, and that is that God created things with some level of maturity such that they fulfilled their function at the moment of creation, okay? They fulfilled their function at the moment of creation. Adam was created, fully formed, 
with all the tools that he needed to be able to get the job done that God assigned to him. He was created with the mental faculties to take care of it. He was created with the physical form and strength needed to do it. Okay, He was created with mechanisms to help care for his body. Uh, while, yes, we, we believe that sin entered into the world and fundamentally altered some things about um, the actual earth, probably the way that organisms interact with the earth, and, and it led to actual consequences of, of things going downhill. Nevertheless, we realized that Adam was created with the ability and humans uh, still needed the ability to sustain their their life. You know, the, the second law of thermodynamics would have to be working so that people could walk and breathe, you know, things like this. So we do have this level of maturity there. And because of this, it has uh, some consequences for creation theory that will actually set us up to, to see some big differences between how we might interpret or look at some issues on creation versus how um, we would see them in evolution and then how those things actually shake out in the real world. And so that's the subject matter we're covering today, the biological expectations of creation theory. And we're just going to dive right into these, run right through them, and we'll be done in, in probably 10, 15 minutes or so, okay? All right, the first is uh, common characteristics. Common characteristics. So God created organisms with similarities in order to fulfill specific functions. Now, this idea of similarity versus dissimilarity, we've talked about it already within this series. And it's um it's it's really the core of the issue. Okay. So it is a very important thing for us to to realize. You 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 see how um an evolutionist and a creationist could both look at a at something in the real world, at an organism or at something that was designed and come up with maybe some reasonable expectations for how those things um, were formed or uh, developed. Now, let's take something kind of obvious, um, like a skateboard, okay? You have a, um, you have a thing, a skateboard, in the real world that you're looking at and, and you're thinking, well, was this designed? Was this intelligently created? Or, um, and maybe what you're looking at is actually more like a line of skateboards. Okay. And you're, you're, you're arranging them in a sort of quote unquote evolutionary tree of skateboards. And you can kind of look and you can kind of see, well, you know, did what parts of these were needed in order to um, accomplish the bare minimum function of this thing? What are maybe some extras that were added on later in the process, et cetera? What are some similarities between them? You know, do, do, do all, let's say we're looking at five skateboards. Do all five skateboards have a deck, right? Do they all have wheels? Do they all have whatever other parts, you know, that are going to be inside of a skateboard? Uh, trucks. And, uh, and the answer is yes. And so, you know, I know we're using a bit of a facetious example, but the evolutionist may come along and might want to say, well, if, if we arrange the 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 tree of similarity and the, the development of this thing o over time, maybe given millions of years, the skateboard uh, progression would have happened exactly in this order. Or you could look at it and say, oh, well, because it's a skateboard and the purpose is for a human to climb on and skate on it, it's going to need a couple of things. It's going to need decks. It's going to need trucks. It's going to need wheels and other things. And so when you look at these things together, you're thinking, okay, well, even though this this skateboard and, and this skateboard and that skateboard and that skateboard are, are all different, 
in some ways. Maybe they're made by a different brand. They're a different color. Maybe there's slightly different different curve or, or curvature or shape or something to them. Regardless, they were all designed to accomplish very much the same purpose. And so there are going to be some similarities between them. As we look at the uh, organic world, there's no reason to think that this is any different. Okay. It should not be surprising that all felines have legs uh, and that even humans ha have legs, um, even though the way that, again, because of what they were designed to do differs, those legs are going to work differently and um, operate differently. For example, uh, cats have four legs and humans have two. Okay. Plain and simple. But we each have legs because we have a, a goal that we were accomplished to achieve and we have that and that's what we were given. We were given that common set of tools to be able to accomplish it. A snake happens to not uh, need legs in order to accomplish what a snake needs to accomplish. So a snake does not have legs and it, it doesn't uh, need them, um, whereas some other organisms uh, do have them because they do need them. So what am I getting at here? Well, the idea is is that when you're, especially when you're looking at the biological world, um, you know, it can sometimes be reasonable to suggest either option. Now, I'm, I'm, what I'm not doing here is advocating for evolution. I'm just saying that if you were somebody who was entirely convinced that there was no God, you're entirely convinced that science has the answers here, you're entirely convinced that the experts have it right regarding the neo-Darwinian synthesis and all of that, and you're just trying to construct an evolutionary tree, I'm saying that traits that can be explained by a common designer could also, in certain circumstances, you could posit a common ancestor for those. And, by the way, in creation, we do have, we're going to talk about this, the notion of common ancestors. It's just we don't go back to a universal single common ancestor, like a common, you know, like a single-celled organism that we all eventually developed from. Um, that boundary uh, is it's seemingly impossible to get to uh, just by looking at the biological diversity of life that we have. And so while that is certainly not the case, we, we can look at, you know, all canines, all felines and say, yeah, like each of these are derived from a pair, a common pair ancestor of that um, particular kind. Okay. And so that's what the creationist project is. So we're not, we don't want to be uh, afraid of, of, of the similarity and the common characteristics between organisms. We need to be able to explain them. And there are ways to do this on creationism without relying on evolutionism. And one of the uh, illustrations that Dr. Wise uses here is actually the wedding at Cana. Okay. This is a really fascinating example. It's in John, uh, I believe, is it John 2? Um, John chapter 2 and uh, verses 9 and 10 um, in, in that area, I think. So when when Jesus, you know, converted the water into wine, the head waiter or the, the ruler of the feast, depending on what translation you're using, um, you know, you, you tasted it and he, he started to ask some different questions. And, and you can read the book to find out more about this illustration, but he comes to some different conclusions about the um, the nature, the origination of the wine, because all he has to work with in his mind are naturalistic categories. Okay. And, um, the thing is, is he got the wrong interpretation of where the wine came from because he wasn't allowing for the possibility of supernatural creation of fiat <laughs> of the wine. And so this is the sort of thing we're getting at here is you can look in, again, look at the same bit of data. And then based on your background assumptions, you can look, you, you can see different options for how these things came to pass, and um, then you'd have to look into each of those options to evaluate them further as to which uh, ends up being more uh, reasonable. Okay, so that's the first expectation is is common characteristics. And this is, again, like I said, an expectation somewhat of evolutionary theory as well, actually quite a bit of evolutionary theory. 
Okay. Second one is complete precision design. So evolution theory suggests that we're the sum total of all of our parts, right? We are what we are today because over millions and millions of years of biological development, we were the strongest to survive and we were the most fit in our environment and we developed traits that allowed us to maintain that status and become where we are today. By definition, every organism that is currently surviving and thriving in its environment today um, is a part of that natural selection, that fitness selection process. And because of that, evolutionary theory suggests that we are the sum total of our parts. But creation would suggest that we're given what we needed from the beginning in order to fulfill our purposes. So we're not the sum total of our parts. We are given purposes and often asked to uh, even transcend or to go beyond those purposes, uh, but we're given what we need in order to accomplish this from the very beginning within our creation. We are designed, our bodies are designed to repair themselves, for example. Um, that's that's one good example of this. Another is uh, the example of purposeful over-design, which is really great. Um, they, they talked about this a lot in the book, Searching for Adam, The Truth About Man's Origin. Um, we um, we actually went through that book in the very beginning of this podcast uh, very thoroughly we went through each chapter. So if you're interested in it, I would love for you to go back through and actually uh, listen to that entire series. Uh, we talked about some really good stuff. And one of the things that we we looked at in there was the idea of purposeful overdesign. The fact that in the in the design of humanity specifically, we have we have things that we can't do. For example, the ability to uh, to to sing. It's just one very simple example, okay? The ability to to sing in a very um, just beautiful way. There, there, there seems to be nothing that um, is is required. Like there's no requirement um, to be able to sing in order to survive or or, or thrive in an atmosphere um, or in an environment. And um, yet we have the ability to do that. And lots of other examples too of, of things that we can we can do with our with our bodies with our with our physical extremities that the bare minimum of surviving in a, through an evolutionary process, uh, it seems no reason for that. Um, uh, you know, evolution wouldn't predict that, that we would go through that or we would have the ability to do that, and yet we can't. So purposeful overdesign, we seem to be able to go beyond what our parts can merely accomplish. So this is an expectation that sets us apart from evolutionary theory as creationists and seems to be in our favor. Okay, the next one is broad similarities and different details. Broad similarities, different details. So, of course, like we discussed, we would expect similarities in creation and evolutionary models, but when you begin to look at the details of things, then it gets a lot more fuzzy, particularly for evolution, right? And that's because when you start zooming in and looking closer, yes, while there is broad similarity, there are very, very different details within that. And this gets into, Dr. Wise discusses uh, the difference between homologies and homoplasies, okay? And I think I'm saying that right, homoplasies, homoplasies, there's probably different ways to say it, but I'm going to say homologies and homoplasies, okay? And wh what we're talking about here is the idea of the evolutionary tree versus the evolutionary orchard, okay? When you look at the homologies, homologies are similarities, okay? And homoplasies are the differences um, within the broad groups of those similarities. So I'm going to quote this to you here, quote from Dr. Wise. With the common use of computers in the last few decades, it has become possible to count how many different homology trees can be made and to count how many homoplasies there are for each tree. These methods, these methods, excuse me, these methods have shown 
that multiple trees and numerous homoplasies are the rule rather than the exception, just as young age creation expects and evolution does not. Point being there that what we actually see when we look at the real world is not, oh, everything can be so nicely and neatly connected by an evolutionary tree. What we see is that there are different homologies, groups with broad similarities that can be put together. And then within those, there are numerous homoplasies that separate ones from the next. And that's where phenomenology, if you go back to the last episode, uh, really, really comes in and really shines because we can demonstrate that similarity and dissimilarity using the uh, using that very method. Okay, the next one, second to last, is the fossil record, the fossil record. Okay, I'm going to quote from Dr. Wise here to give you, um, uh, kind of set this up. Quote, these important findings form another consequence of the creation of adult forms. No created organism was derived from any other created organism. The only true transitions in Earth history would be those that occurred after the creation. If God created genetic barriers to change, then transitions would be restricted to stay within those barriers, within Brahmins, for example. Given the short Earth history in Young Age creationism, transitions that took longer than the time available would not have occurred, even if they were theoretically possible, in a longer Earth history. Additionally, for there to be fossil evidence of any transition that did occur, fossil forming processes must have been fast enough to preserve the transition, and they must have occurred at the right time and place in order to record the transition, end quote. Okay, what are we getting at here? What we're getting at here is the idea that evolutionary theory expects a ton of transitional forms because most of life, um, given the assumptions of evolution, is dead, Okay. And in this broad scope of life, you would have the some preservation within the fossil record. At, you would expect quite a, quite a big deal, actually, of it, quite a great deal of it, um, of, of, this, of this transitional from one form to another. And yet we see very, 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 very little of this. In fact, the 95% um, of the fossil record is made up by um, marine animals and invertebrates. And we see virtually no transitional forms within that entire 95% swath of, of the fossil data, which is just crazy. Now, there are cases in which you could point to where it looks like you might have something like a transitional form. However, it would be mistaken to just assume that that's what they are or to, or to call them that even uh, because that buys into evolutionary thinking, right? This is another example, kind of like using Linnaean language. It's another like species, you know, versus kind. Um, but it, this is just another example of where we want to make sure that we're not buying into false assumptions when explaining our view. So one way that, that uh, Wise likes to put this, he likes to call these stratigraphic intermediates. And I, I'm taking this from a, uh, one of the training videos that I watched um, um, one of the lessons from the Is Genesis History uh, lecture series, which is fantastic. You can get it at isgenesishistory.com. It's really, really awesome. 70 creation lectures for like five bucks. It's, uh, it's a ridiculously good deal. And so he talks about this idea of stratigraphic intermediates. So um, we have organisms that seem to be between other organisms in the actual uh, fossil record that maybe even show some sort of similarity to the ones above and below and so could be seen as some sort of quote-unquote transitional form again if you actually look at the data um available on this there are very very few of these forms even there and dr wise has uh explained different theories for how these could have come about for example you could have the floating forest theory which is something dr wise is known for um 
where uh, so-called transitional forms that are that are sort of amphibious looking um, may actually just be a result of the environment in which they live. It's not that they're the transitional uh, form or intermediate in between two particular types of organisms or kinds. Rather, it's just that they are a kind of themselves. And we would expect very, very um, – a few of these and the ones that we have would, would be expected to live in very different ecosystems from even some of what is available on the earth today, okay? So my point with all of that is the fossil record, largely speaking, provides fantastic evidence for creation over and against evolution. Is there still ways that evolutionists can use the fossil record and do use the fossil record to meet their interpretations? Sure, but the expectations are a lot more in line with creationism. And then the last one is organismal developments, okay? The last expectation, organismal developments. Now, there's this concept in biology called ontogeny will recapitulate phylogeny, okay? And so this uh, so-called embryological reca uh, recapitulation, I'm going to quote here from the book, is the stages of an organism's development or ontogeny from a single cell to an adult that looks similar to recapitulate the stages in evolutionary ancestry, which is phylogeny, of that organism from a single cell over billions of years. Put in short, when ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, okay, end quote. Now, this is a particular way of looking at so-called evolutionary data that even many evolutionists no longer agree with. If you want a great book that goes into this a little bit, um, um, Dr. Uh, Michael Behe talks about this in his on, in his book, Darwin Devolves. He probably talks about it in lots of his other ones too, but his book, Darwin Devolves, goes into this and is fantastic. And he, he just really demonstrates um, with some specifics how this fails and breaks down. And we don't have time to get into all of that today. I do want to quote this as well from Dr. Wise though. Quote, there is compelling similarity between development and phylogeny and general appearance, but the differences in detail suggests the similarity is not because of embryological recapitulation. The claimed evidences of embryological re recapitulation are better explained by young age creation theory than by evolution. I'm going to continue with Wise here. He says, many evolutionary biologists reject embryological recapitulation. The reasons for the rejection vary, but they range from theoretical problems with the principle to abundant differences in the details between embryology and phylogeny exactly what would be expected in young age creation theory. The similarity and dissimilarity between ontogeny and phylogeny is better explained by young age creationism than by evolutionary theory, close quote. So that's it. Organismal developments. Even in this case, the expectations, the reality of what we see is more in line with what we would expect given creation theory instead of evolution theory. And it all boils down, once again, to when you look at the details, there are differences, okay? The saying, the devil is in the details, not always true. In this case, God is in the details. The designer, not the devil, is in the details. And that ranges across organismal development, the fossil record, broad similarities in different details, complete precision design, and common characteristics. These are the biological expectations of creation theory. Okay. I hope that you enjoyed this. I hope that this was helpful for you. If you have questions about it, specific questions, I wouldn't mind you sending an email to steve at steveshram.com. Ask me about it, and we'll see if we can get an answer for you on the podcast. One of these days, I would actually like to interview Dr. Wise and have him come on. Maybe if you have questions, we can gather them together and actually ask him some follow-up questions from this study that we've done. I think that would be pretty cool. Otherwise, until next time, God bless. I hope this finds you well, and I hope this has been a useful study for you.